0: This is The Squad Room, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the 21st season of SVU. If you have not watched episode 2108, We Dream of Machine Elves, we advise you to do so before listening.
1: Hello and welcome back to The Squad Room. I am your host, Anthony Roman, and this is episode 2108, We Dream of Machine Elves. What a wild and very unique episode this was. Joining us on the program, another new addition to the cast. Demore Barnes is here. We talk all things Chief Garland, and we get a lot of background on his character. After that, longtime SVU camera operator and the director of this episode, John Herron stops in and gives us a nice glimpse of what goes on behind the scenes. And finally, co-writers Monet Hurst-Mendoza and Brendan Feeney return to The Squad Room to talk about how this very interesting episode of SVU came to life. All this is happening right here on The Squad Room, which is brought to you, as always, by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. I'm here with Jamor Barnes, Chief Garland, and welcome to the show.
2: Yes. Season 21. Yeah, I wanted to come, I think, a few weeks ago, but I was uh, down in the weather, and uh, you guys are kind to wait for me. Thank you. We're anxious to meet you.
1: Yes, the world wants to meet you. And I want to talk to you a little bit about the beginning, just how you arrived at SVU on the show, and just the acting you were doing prior to this and stuff.
2: Yeah, it's been a really enjoyable journey thus far. Uh, I guess it began a few months ago. uh, I had a phone conversation, or I guess a few conversations with Warren Light, where we really just kind of talked about the character and sort of the possibilities for how we would frame Garland, create Garland, and and bring him to life. That was a really enjoyable process. Um, It was just really organic, the way that we came about it. And there was a way in which Warren really... I think the way that he tends to work, or at least as he described to me, is that, you know, he doesn't want to reinvent the wheel when that's not necessary. And um, we really kind of begged, borrowed, and stole (laughs) Uh, from my own life, from my own experience, uh, being Torontonian, Canadian, growing up in Canada, in the suburbs of Toronto. And, you know, that, with a slew of other little tidbits and details, really became a launchpad for for what we will see and, and continue to see of Garland. Were you paying attention to what your predecessors had done in the role? Or is that not something you'd look at? Peter Gallagher set the bar really high. Uh, I think I would be remiss to step into this role and not have a good sense or a good grasp of the bar and where it was set. And so I'm one for challenges, and, and the bar has definitely been set at a height that is is challenging. Now, that being said, I'm not going about to try and fill... Peter Gallagher's shoes, because I don't think that would be, um, I think I'd be disingenuous to say that's what I was trying to do. I don't think that would be even possible. Uh, I'm really trying to uh, break in my own shoes, so to speak, and uh, enjoy the process of doing that. Another thing you said reminds me of when
1: I had Kelly on was that one of the things that she liked about Warren was that he said, Originally, her her character was supposed to come from Pennsylvania. And he said, no, let's have your character come from Georgia, you know, from the South, where you come from. And, like, Mm -hmm, bring mm -hmm. this element. And Jamie was saying that he wants Kat to be Lebanese because she's, you know, just bring as much of yourself
2: as you can to the role. And it
1: sounds like he was doing that with you, too, so.
2: Yeah, very much so. Very much so. And I think, you know, we... We, he, I say he, uh, as he led uh, led us through the, the discussion and the exploration and creation of Garland in our earlier conversations, I remember he kind of latched on to the fact that I, although being from Toronto, I was from a suburb of Toronto, uh, Scarborough, proudly so. So then he started thinking like, okay, well then, you know, we're not going to have you be from the, the center of, of Manhattan. We're going to find, and appropriately so, find a suburb, Uh, where you would have grown up in. And then we kind of, uh, if I remember correctly, we kind of pivoted and we thought, okay, well, given that Garland is actually a second-generation cop, which the audience wouldn't know at this point, but they do now, if this remains in, born in the city, however, uh, given the time period that Garland was born, probably in and around the cocaine crisis in the mid-'80s, his father, knowing and having experienced all that he did and would have as a cop, took him, Garland, and his mother and his family and moved them to suburbs of New York. And in doing that, really aligned Garland's Come From with my Come From as well. Is there a
1: lot of discussion about what Chief Garland and... Olivia
2: Benson's relationship is going to be like? Uh, That's a great question. That was something that we discussed from the outset quite extensively, more in the sense of what we want Garland to be like and feel like as this newcomer to the 16th precinct and the impact, whether intended or unintended, that he would have on Olivia and the rest of the team. And I would say in terms of their dynamic, Garland being as analytical and well-researched as he is. And Olivia being as, uh, if I could say, famed and prolific as she is uh, within not only the precinct, but in NYPD, Garland knows who she is and what he didn't know he would have read up on or found out from other colleagues. And I think in the early going, I think there is uh, somewhat of a testing period that Garland is... Uh, entering into, not only with Olivia, but the rest of the team, getting a pulse of, of how they work and how they don't work, getting a sense of the direction that he wants to take the team in and how he wants to do that. And I think as far as their relationship, I think it remains to be seen whether they become their version of good friends. Uh, certainly her and Dodds were fantastic friends. And I can't say that they'll end up there, but perhaps they'll, they'll, they'll surpass it, but it'll be their own thing. You know, when and if they get there. In episode three, which is your premiere episode, down low
1: in Hell's Kitchen. In Hell's Kitchen, yeah. You, you go undercover in the bar. I sure uh, do. And what did, you,
2: <laughs> what did you think of that? I mean, right right in there, you got you know. <laughs> oh, man, it was, it was so fun. Like, it was, uh, it was Garland being thrown in, and it was me being thrown in. Right. That, that was actually the first scene that I ever filmed, was that bar scene. And so that presented myself and Tim Busfield, fantastic yeah. director, love working with him. I hope I get to work with him again. Uh, it presented some some challenges and some opportunities to be playing this character and beginning to establish this character on day one, moment one, but not the character himself, but Garland undercover. Right. Uh, it was a bit of a brain teaser for us. But we did our utmost with it. And, you know, I believe it came off really, really well. Yeah, it was great. And, uh, you know, I think that bar scene served as a nice counterpoint for uh, what the audience had seen prior to that and for what they see mostly of of Garland. But, you know, I'd say rest assured that Garland is not unlike any onion that that anyone's ever seen. And and there are other layers and uh, more to be revealed and discovered for sure. In episode
1: eight, which is twenty one oh eight. Machine, machine. Elves, we dream of machine we, dream of machine. we dream of machine. Yes. Yes. Um, you have a few interesting scenes. There's one where you force. Well, you don't force, but you suggest very firmly. It's a gentleman that, that, Garland's a gentleman. That, that, <laughs> that Benson, you know, takes character on the drive and kind of you know, to look for landmarks, look for the things that she's uh, and it, despite Benson saying, "I'm," she's not ready for that. Yes. You're like, no, you're, you're you're going. You know. Yes. Um, yes. And I was just wondering if you like being in that position of, like, this is what needs to get done. And I don't care if you disagree. Or is that an uncomfortable place for you?
2: Yeah, I, I'd say that point that you've picked within uh, that episode is, in my mind, it's not insignificant. Because that interchange of even just those few lines between Garland and Benson, I think, really typifies the tension that Garland as the new deputy chief of police is faced with when navigating the responsibilities that come with being the deputy chief, but then also having a team of which you are also responsible to, that coming with various people who have been victimized and, you know, perpetrators who are who are on the lam and on, on the move. And so how does Garland navigate that minefield of having his bosses be satisfied with what's going on having his team feel like he's competent and capable and I mean to some degree compassionate and empathetic you know to the things that they are compassionate and empathetic about but that ultimately he is someone who cares about what's right and to me that's really great as an actor you know you always want to be navigating at least Two things that are in seeming opposition to one another—never mind three or four or five or you name it—which uh, I think is where Garland finds himself. You know, which is why he says, "You know, I know you'll be sensitive to her experience and to our needs." Yeah. You know, and she made a comment about, you know, it's like, oh, this is a, something about flattery, right? And uh, you know, no, he he retorts, he said, "No, no, it's sincere." because he he is sincere, it's both. And it's all of the difficulty and challenge uh, that comes with having to navigate that tension. And I think we'll continue to see Garland within those dynamics of sort of those multifaceted points of tension, not only in the precinct, but then also uh, we'll see in his home life, we'll get glimpses of that. We'll see also, again, from a race standpoint of where he's having to pursue his objectives while juggling many, many balls in the air.
1: Are you concerned that you're being insensitive to the victim in that moment? How do you know how to balance that? She's saying she's not ready to go, but you're like, you got to go because we got to solve this. Making quick decisions like that and stuff is, when I saw the scene, I was struck by, you're just like, no, this is this is what needs to get done.
2: That's a great point. I think Garland is keenly aware of not, and I really don't mean this in a callous way, and I, I think My compassion and empathy goes up for our more sensitive viewers, but like he is really thinking of the bigger picture and he's thinking of not only in that instance Freya and, you know, putting her in a car and and seeing what else may come back to her, uh, that Garland is a big proponent of the so that, you know, dot, dot, dot in any given uh, equation and, you know, put her in a car and see what comes back so that we can figure out who's abducting all of these tourists and, and, it's dr- and drug- drugging them yeah. and raping them. And so it's a matter of, uh, safety of, of the community. I think that's what I think the audience over time, uh, as they feel satisfied, will really start to see that Garland is, uh, is one who is governed by, uh, a moral compass, uh, who wants to do what's right. And, uh, who is somewhat heroic in his uh, dealings and how he goes about things, uh, and is not as he comes like uh, he comes off like a bit of a hard ass to a lot of a hard ass. It depends on the situation. However, he's he's very strategic and very tactical about why he's doing any particular thing at any given point in time and why he's going about it in however way he is at a given point in time. Nothing is by accident. He hasn't gotten to where he is today being a black man in America by fluke or coincidence. Uh, It's by uh, a tremendous will and intention. And then Rollins seems to have
1: a way in and insight as to what's happening. What do you make of her connection to this?
2: Um, I pick up on it, or shall I say Garland picks up on it. Uh, There's not much, uh, I think, from an emotional standpoint that uh, makes it, past his, uh, his assessment. Um, I think he's clocked the sort of the resonance, the affinity that she seems to have, you know, for the professor, you know, almost as though I, I think he sees it somewhat as, of, a as being somewhat of a, almost like a spell, uh, that she's, she's been somewhat enchanted. I don't think, uh, it, do, it, it doesn't tip to the point of, Uh, Any red flags going off, but uh, it certainly makes it into the bucket of duly noted. Would you say it concerns you that Rollins is enchanted, or just you're just aware? I think I'm sort of in the land between uh, (laughs) uh, noticing and and concern. I think, given Garland's background, even just his his personal and his educational background, um, you know, he actually has his master's in divinity from from Yale Law School which I don't think the listeners would be aware of. I think he's keenly and intimately aware of the power and the impact of someone who is very charismatic and very passionate. These types of individuals, whether it be in the church or even within business, uh, you kind of name the sphere or the environment can be, very, can be very enchanting. You know, We see it in advertising, we see it in media, and I don't think it extends much more beyond that. Uh, however, it is something that I think he maintains a watchful eye on.
1: At the end, Rollins is able to uh, have this breakthrough with Adler. She, he begins to think it's his. She's his ex-wife, who we didn't know existed. Uh, how? What did you think of the way things just kind of fell apart before your eyes?
2: But you're talking about in terms of Adler and his unraveling yeah. before our eyes, yeah, and and how that that resolved or yeah. or <laughs> did not did not resolve. Did not yeah. resolve. I'm not sure that what Garland viewed and experienced standing there with Benson and Finn on the other side of the glass. I think that's for Garland, that whole scenario and how that went down. And even just the fact that from Garland's standpoint, he felt like he was trying to play us, you know, like really yeah. well. Yeah. But playing us nonetheless, that for Garland, that would be like gasoline on, on Garland's fire. You know, I think it's individuals like this that Garland had heard about from his father around the dinner table, uh, you know, on, on, you know, walks the park or, you know, even just sidebar discussions like, you know, at the ball game or to or from the ball game, you know, you name it. I think this, this individual and what this individual was doing and perpetrating against those who are vulnerable, I think, uh, is beginning to get to the heart of what actually fuels Garland. So I don't think he had any any I don't think he had any taste for for Adler and uh, and just really the whole situation and any patience for it. And his unraveling did not make Garland feel any compassion for him. No, no, I no he it, it didn't because I I think from Garland and just his sense of. Uh, his sense of justice and uh, in, in his inherent desire to advocate for those in need, it just seemed like a really uh, cunning move. Is it from a, a really move? smart and did it
1: really did it really happen? What do you what what do you think happened?
2: I think Garland thinks it was a play. Yeah, it was a play by a really really smart individual. Does Amanda think it's a play? I, that I don't know. That I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if we kind of look at the way that the the episode walked out and we look at some of the touch points that that we saw woven throughout the story, if we're looking at it uh, on, a, like on a spectrum, if we have complete, you know, off the deep end, poor, poor man, you know, he's lost it. He's unraveled on one side. And, and if we have, you know, conniving charlatan on the other, uh, certainly I think we would see very clearly that Garland sits more to conniving charlatan than, than to the other end. And I think, I think, I mean, I don't, I, I don't want to speak uh, for, you know, my castmates, but I, I would think that she would be at the other end of the spectrum for sure.
1: And that's really fascinating to me, actually. That's, yeah. that's a sign
2: of some good writing. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well, Jamore Barnes, thank you so much for coming on the squad room. It was a pleasure to meet you today. It's a pleasure, And thank I you. hope to see more of you in the squad room. That you will.
2: That you will. Thanks for having me.
1: John Heron is a longtime camera operator on SVU and the director of We Dream of Machine Elves. He came by the squad room and got technical with us about directing this episode. So I have with me in the squad room, John Heron, who is the director of We Dream of Machine Elves. And he also works on the show in a variety of positions, capacities. Is that right, John? Right. So most of the time, I'm the A-camera
0: cam operator. So I'm responsible for moving the camera through, you know, throughout shots, designing shots in <laughs> conjunction with the directors, and then carrying the steady Steadicam around, which is, you know, I'm sure everybody knows, is sort of a body-mounted stabilization device that keeps the camera, you know, run up and down stairs and through doorways across streets, you know, takes the camera wherever you want to go.
1: How integral to the look of Law & Honor SVU are you?
0: You know, over the years, we've had sort of different iterations of the look. And when it first started out, the Steadicam was responsible for a lot of the um, big developing wonders, as we call them. And wonders means, you know, it's a whole scene in one shot where we would follow actors around the squad room, sort of concentrating on dialogue and the most important bits of action in a scene and taking it from start to finish, you know, maybe going entirely across the squad room or from room to room, then uh, the show has sort of developed into more of a handheld look. So we do similar things, but with a camera on the shoulder, not on a dolly or on a Steadicam. And in conjunction with ideas and directives from the producers and the directors, the camera operators and the whole camera department follows the themes and the ideas that occur, you know, the visual ideas and themes that come up during a season. So. We have a broad um, instructions from on top, and we execute them on a day-to-day basis, you know, making decisions along the way, wherever is appropriate.
1: When you look back at, like, let's say season 10 or 11 or something, does the show look significantly different to you? Because it does to me. Well, you know, production
0: design is always evolving. You know, the squad room is always changing, and we adapt to the changes the design department makes. For example, what are the most visually pleasing paths that the camera can follow through the squad room? So uh, that that changes as the furniture and the decor changes in in the squad room. And um there are varying degrees of roughness and smoothness, I guess you'd say. So there have been seasons where the camera moves in a very smooth way, and then some seasons where the camera moves in a very rough way and, some seasons where we've concentrating on use, using a, sort of telephoto lenses in the squad room to compress the backgrounds. And some seasons where we've used uh, you know, wider lenses to sort of feel the motion of the camera you know, more intently. It, those are some of the parameters
1: that have changed over the years. Would you say, because I know nothing about this aspect of filmmaking. When I look at, and at the start of this podcast, I've now just been watching all of them whenever I can. The lighting looks significantly different to me in the older episodes. Lighting, you know, the lighting
0: is um, usually taken care of by the director of photography and the gaffer, and that's again in conjunction with um, ideas that the producers and the you know, producing director might have. Lighting is—it's not really something that I'm responsible for, but it has changed, you know, tremendously over the years. And we, I work together with the guys who are doing the lighting to sort of. Highlight the best side of what we want to make the, you know, how we want to make the squad room and the the other sets look. And that's just very simply, you know, is it a dark look? Is it a bright look? Do we want to highlight high contrast? You know, see bright windows and dark rooms? Do we want to have heavy shadow on sides of people's faces? And I work very closely with the director of photography, Mike Green, and the gaffer, Mike Burke, to best feature their work in, in the shots that, that I design with the directors.
1: Would you say the show is a bit brighter than it used to be?
0: Or is that just my imagination? It goes back and forth. It's gone back and forth over the past couple years. Um, we try one thing and then you find that it works really well. And then we try something else. Different directors have different tastes, different... Are, are,
1: are outside directors allowed to kind of adjust the look of the show?
0: To a degree in certain situations you
1: know as with everything in
0: the show lighting and camera work are story driven so if it's supposed to be a a sad scene in the squad room in the middle of the night it might be darker than sort of more upbeat scene in the middle of the day it's um so yeah so within a range individual directors can make lighting adjustments or request lighting adjustments but you know there is there as you're hinting at there is a palette that we don't diverge from because that's just it it wouldn't be go too far from then it's not our show anymore
1: and prior to this episode how many
0: episodes have you directed
1: Uh, i directed five or
0: six before this it's um a few seasons Mm -hmm. that i didn't direct anything and i've been here for nine
1: years so i think this is the sixth if i haven't if i haven't lost track this episode is very very unique I think, to SVU. You're going into kind of, for lack of a better word, psychedelic territory at times. And I wanted to talk to you just about the teaser where I think you are you have to introduce us to this world, which is, you know, out there. How do you approach that without dipping too far into corny Alice in Wonderland, you know, kind of... Well, we bit off a
0: little bit at a time. There are several CGI effects that occur in the teaser in the show. And we started out by suggesting that you might be stepping off into another realm by using POV shots that were had sort of out-of-focus effects on them. Something that, again, we don't do a lot of. So something that a character sees in the, uh, in the teaser might be out of focus, or it's going from sharp focus to out of focus. And that sort of shows the audience that she's been drugged. She's been unwittingly drugged. And at that point, we're sort of hoping that the audience goes along with seeing from her point of view the hallucinations that her being drugged has brought on. And then we go to the most benign hallucination, which is um, a sort of psychedelic hawk. And at that point, we're sort of hoping that the audience is along for the ride, and people start morphing into what we call machine elves or what is known in sort of the world of DMT as uh, machine elves. They're strange energy aura beings. Does so, everyone see... If me and you took it right now, we would see the machine elves? So this is what people say, that there is a very specific hallucination that that one sees after taking DMT, and, it's, and it sort of runs across all people who try the drug, that this drug causes a very specific hallucination. And that was, I think, what we found very fascinating in in researching and sort of fine-tuning the script for this episode, is that this this phenomenon seems pretty widespread. And I've mentioned, it's funny, you know, sort of casual conversation, I've mentioned, oh yeah, I directed an episode that has DMT in it uh, for Law and Order, and they say, oh, did you have machine elves? it's like well as a matter of fact we did they 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 show up every time you do it don't you know and that's that's how it is show up in the title right so um yeah so then we go to the more elaborate hallucinations and that carries on for a couple of scenes
1: and like i said we're sort of hoping that we've set it up in such a way that people are ready to go with it do you agree that it's very difficult to portray hallucinations in film and tv i mean it's it's difficult to sort of conceive it in
0: such a way that it doesn't look cheesy. I mean, you right. have to be true to to the research and to the reality of, of what happens. But, I mean, that's the great thing about the state of CGI these days is that once you've sort of made a decision and it's and it works with your story and, and you're sure of your research and your writing, um, you can do anything you want. I mean, these hallucinations sprang from our imaginations just as much as they sprang from the writings and the sort of stories that we heard from people
1: who've actually experienced them. So you're the first director to come on the show. So take me a little bit, just do timeline with me. You're hired to uh, direct an episode. Obviously, you're very busy because you're doing other things on the show. But what's the normal? How does it begin? How does the process of working on this episode begin?
0: So a couple weeks out, a directing gig consists of seven days of prepping, which is location scouting, uh, casting, meetings with various departments, props, wardrobe. What uh, kind
1: of date? Like 14-hour date? Like-
0: no, that's that's sort of lower key. That's 10 to 12 hours.
1: Okay.
0: Um, the, the most important meeting is the tone meeting, where one sits down with the writing staff and the producers and sort of goes through the points that they think are most important about the show. And it's really a, it's sort of a a guideline to make sure that everybody's on the same page about how the material is to be treated. So the first day of prep starts out with what's called a concept meeting. It's exactly that. You read through the script and you say, okay, these are the main ideas for the script as it now stands. And as the days of prep go on, the script evolves. People get a chance to throw their ideas. And by people, I mean, you know, pretty much everybody. Producers, writers, both junior and senior writers get to throw in their ideas. The director, you know, I get to throw in my ideas. And people like, uh, you know, the production designer might have a great idea for a set, which would get incorporated into the script. And and so you get all everybody's ideas and all the sort of intricacies of that. You get that down on paper. And then you run around the city looking for locations that are going to work for the show. The locations department is very tuned into the needs of every script and every director. And all the while, the assistant directors are putting together schedules so that everything is filmable in the eight days of shooting that we have available. You sit down with the casting director who brings in people to read four parts that aren't filled by, you know, making a phone call or putting out a, just an offer. And then, like I said, meetings with various department heads. So you'll sit down with the costume designer and talk about costumes. You sit down with the extras casting and talk about how many extras you need. You'll talk with a prop master about cars and weapons and props that the actors may handle. And then the, the sixth day of prep, is a what's called the tech scout where everybody gets in a van and drives around to all the locations and everybody the all the department heads so everybody who's responsible for one of the departments for the wardrobe department for lighting department for the grip department the camera department there may be 15 or 20 of us get in a van And go around and the director shows everybody, okay, these are the shots that we will do at this location. So-and-so will walk from here to there. The camera will do this. And we will need X, Y, and Z props. We will need X, Y, and Z cars. We will see this part of this location and not this part of this location. So that is where the trucks can go. I mean, it's down to every last little detail. Where do we put the trucks? Where do we put the campers? What drapes do we need on these windows? And all the details are discussed on the Technical Scout. And final day, there is what's called the production meeting, where you go through the script, scene by scene, sort of rehashing the details that were gone over on the Technical Scout, and just making sure that everything is down on paper and everybody's um, everybody's aware of decisions and elements that will affect the, you know their department. Everybody
1: knows what they're responsible for. And that brings you right up to the cast read-through.
0: Well, the cast read-through happens somewhere in there. So the cast read-through is... is um, That's for the actors. The actors can hear the words all together for the first time. And then presumably they've they've been reading the script as it's gone through its, you know, sort of developing drafts. So um, the cast read-through is generally toward the end of prep. So that the writers have had a chance to get the script as close to its finished version as it's going to be. And the actors get a chance to hear the words. And sometimes... You know, hearing the words spoken is very different from reading them on the page. So things will become apparent that might need to be altered. Um, the actors have a chance to say, well, to put in to put in their request. Is there a better way to say this? Um, is there a better order to say this in? Is it better? Occasionally, one actor might say, "Isn't it better if someone else says this?" Um, so it's mostly for the cast to sort of hear the words and make sure they're happy with the the shape that
1: the script is in. So moving into the actual episode, you have Adam Arkin, who's obviously a very experienced actor playing the Julius Adler. Are you and he has several scenes where he's, you know, um doing some kind of what could be seen as maybe in chief Garland's eyes as Really, just kind of mumbo jumbo, and but you know, to someone like Rollins, um, he she's connecting with it. W- where are you in the direction of someone like him? Are you he's telling a, him to he, go for
0: it, or he's a he's a you know, to my mind, he's American acting royalty. He is a right. he is a consummate professional. It's sort of like you're just molding a performance. I mean, it's like you're given a half uh, by by virtue of. An actress talented as as Adam and an actress talented as Kelly, and we're talking about the aria, the big the big breakdown scene in the interrogation room. Um, you're given a scene that's that that's very much formed in the beginning when they've they have very concrete ideas that you can count on them being being the right way to approach the scene. They have very concrete ideas going into it, and um, I take a look at what they might do and just sort of shape it to fit. Any ideas that I might have. So it's again, it's a big collaboration. An actor like Adam Arkin doesn't need a lot of direction, and any director would be out of, you know, out of his or her mind to change most of his choices. But it's just, it's sort of a gentle prodding to get it to where it's um easily filmable from a, a blocking and a sort of movement standpoint, and to sort of incorporate any bits and pieces. You know, small points that I think are important. And for example, in in that, they came to it with a little bit of a... um, It seemed to me like a fencing match that somebody would block and somebody would parry and somebody would move and somebody would chase them. And I just helped them elaborate on that a little bit. And as we got into it and started doing takes and started doing close-ups, you know, I'd maybe prod them on one point or one line or ask them to just... uh, Speak to each other a little differently to try and draw out a different response from the partner in the scene. We all had very similar ideas about the scene, and doing that was way simpler than anyone thought. In fact, at the end, Kelly came up to me and she said, "Well, that was a really long scene, and that went way better than I thought it was going to." You know, it was sometimes those long scenes can be difficult and they can be uh, time-consuming, but this uh, it, it flowed really nicely, and a lot of that had to do with the fact that that everybody had prepared really well. And um, we all shared ideas about how it should go.
1: We had Damore on yesterday, and he was saying, Damore Barnes was saying, that Chief Garland doesn't believe Adam Arkin in that scene, doesn't believe Julius. He thinks it's an act. I, as a viewer, thought he had a breakdown. Where, where are you? Um,
0: <laughs> you know, I, I, think it's, I think it's sort of fun to leave it ambiguous. I, you know... That's. But can you, if you're directing an actor, can you
1: can you leave it at you? Oh no! In my mind, in my mind, I
0: I completely I as an audience member, I think it's exciting to have it ambiguous. As a director, I knew that that was that was a real breakdown. Okay, which is how I saw it. And there were, I think, there were circumstances that Garland was not aware of that the audience will be aware of, having watched the whole episode, having seen his wife um, in the psych ward of the hospital. I think makes you realize that this man is is trying to keep a lot of demons at bay, and that uh, he was only able to do it for so long. And once they
1: surfaced, it uh, the uh, the breakdown is 100% real. What's happening between Benson and Rollins in this episode? And did you have to direct that in any way?
0: Um, again, they know their characters as well as anybody, and and I'm just sort of modulating intensity. Like uh, Benson and Rollins are having. Um, it's a little bit of a crisis of confidence. Rollins is intrigued by Dr. Adler, and Benson is suspicious of him. He's a, you know, very likely a, a criminal who's performed some, you know, some terrible acts. And um, Rollins is is letting is willing to let him slide because of his brilliance and because of his sort of former his former work and her acquaintance with him. And Benson's not cutting him any slack. So, there's tension there. And the way that we talk about it is in degree, and how do we let that build to its climax in the hallway at the hospital? And how much do we let the audience see as it's developing? You know, obviously they're work colleagues, and they they will have disagreements. But there's also a, you know, there's a hierarchy there and in their work environment that has to be respected. So, We work on modulating these things, on making them believable and making them consistent with, you know, the relationship as it's been developed over the
1: years. There's a scene with Anise and Kathleen in the hospital at the end. And I thought there was some ambiguity there, too, where, you know, Kathleen says, we were just talking about you. There's a lot of ambiguity in that scene. And and some of it stems from,
0: you know, is Anais a perpetrator or is she a victim? You know, she's a little of each. And this is talked about a lot. And the other ambiguity, as you're alluding to, is Kathleen, you know, does this higher plane really exist? And if you're along for the ride, you have to believe that it might. uh, That maybe some of what Dr. Adler has said about communicating with other people on a higher plane or, you know, by taking these drugs, maybe that really happens. And maybe she, uh, you know, it's sort of an extrasensory perception that gives them the ability to communicate so that these crazy people aren't really crazy. They just might have seen a window into another world that makes them behave differently. And that's, that's one of the ambiguities. And then you also really can't tell if Kathleen is registering, you know, the NICE is there. She might just be someone who suffered a psychotic break and is just going through the motions. So they have one scene in which to make this decision or or, or just sort of draw a conclusion. And, And that's the thing about the show is that, you know, you can go back to these scenes over and over and watch them several times and think, you know, did I get all the subtleties? Will I make the same decision about these characters the third time I watch it as I did the first time I watched it? You know, and there's a lot of layers in that scene to sort of support, you know, multiple
1: viewings or multiple ways of analyzing the scene. Is there a way you shoot a scene like that that you think enables the ambiguities to occur? Like what you do with, like, close-ups and how, or, like, how wide they are? Is there anything technical that makes that happen? Or is it all in the dialogue and the acting? No, oh, I mean, I think everything everything works together at that point. I mean, like you're
0: saying, if you know, you cut to a close up of somebody not saying anything, you know, and they have like a little twist of their eyebrow or just like a little quirk of expression. Does that? What, what are they thinking? Are they are they thinking that this person is is for real, or are they doubting them? And um, so, uh, some of it, some of it, much of it has to do with the editing um and then like you said sometimes the you know a really tight close up just speaks volumes and 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 it depends you know where do you where you put it in the sequence makes makes all the difference And do you know that in advance I mean, everybody has an idea. You have an idea. You always cut it in your head. I mean, even when I'm working as the camera operator, you know, the mantra is, you know, how do you know you're making a good shot? Well, you know, watch the movie. Is this the movie you want to see? While you're behind the camera, are you making the movie that you want the audience to see or the movie that you want to see yourself? So, you know, when you're shooting something, you already have an idea of how it's going to cut. But that's the beauty of it all being a collaboration is that somebody else edits it and often shows you a way of looking at it that hadn't occurred to you. So there you go.
1: Well, John Heron, I think this is a really interesting and effective episode. And thank you for coming on The Squad Room to talk about it. Um, Thanks for having me. It's been a wonderful opportunity. As John said, there were a lot of unique elements to this episode. Co-writers Monet Hurst-Mendoza and Brendan Feeney came by to tell us how it all began. (laughs) We're here in the squad room with Monet, Hurst, Mendoza, and Brendan Feeney. Thanks for coming back on the podcast.
3: Thanks for having us back.
1: So I just want to talk basic background of how this episode came about and the basic idea behind it.
3: Yeah, I think we were initially interested in doing something that was around cults. So when we were doing deep dives into research, we were looking at the different structures of different cults, um, ways that charismatic leaders are able to influence young, malleable minds. And we noticed that a, a common thread is through drug usage. And most of these malleable minds are malleable because they're in a state of unrest, isolation, Loneliness, they feel like outsiders in their own world. When a person who claims to have the answers comes in, they're like, This is the way. And a lot of times they're like, Here, have this drug, and it's going to open your mind. And then it makes, you know, whatever their dogma is just a little bit more pliable.
4: And uh, this is one that really, I would say, evolved um, more so than some of the other ones that we've done. Because initially, you know, you get really maybe one or two episodes a year. Where someone is just purely villainous, a kind of, you know, likes to watch the world burn sort of a character. So that's where we started, and there was no real nuance to it. It was just, he did these things to create chaos, and that wasn't ultimately all that interesting to us. There had to be some kind of ethos there for you to find the character, whether or not you agree with them, and hopefully you don't, um, a real person, you know,
1: three-dimensional. Do you think if it was less of a three-dimensional character, you would go out to someone like Anna Markin? Is it a waste? Yeah, I see. That's, that's the thing. Yeah, you know, he
3: we, was such a lucky find. I know. Yeah,
4: he was, he was fantastic. And you know, when you've got somebody like him who can really sell the, the gravitas of this character, I mean, you've got to deliver for
1: him. You know? Yeah. I want to talk about Rollins' relationship with Dr. Adler and uh, how intrigued she is and what's going on there.
3: I really like the relationship that we have between Adler and Rollins. I think because it's it's evocative of that teacher-student relationship. I think we all have a figure in our lives that we look to that's sort of like a like a guide for us when we're feeling lost. Um, and that's something that Rollins brings up, you know, that she was going through some things when she was in Atlanta. She took some courses with him and he really spoke to her. And I think what's interesting is that by the end of the episode, you know, she touches on the fact that, you know, this could have gone another way, but for some reason she's got her great instincts and didn't veer in the way that, you know, Anais did. Well, that's a whole nother can of worms. Uh,
4: yeah. Well, the, I think there are also you need a spectrum of opinions mm-hmm. with any given episode about any given criminal. Um, if we all hate him and it's just that black and white, then there's no real conversation around it. It's it's not super interesting. So you've got somebody like Finn who does see things in a very black and white fashion. It's, you know, the bad guy is the bad guy. Yeah, and who cares ridiculous. why yeah. he's the bad guy. Yeah. Um, now, on the other side of that, of course, is, is Rollins. And I think she's she and Adler kind of think the same way. They're just, you know, on opposite sides. They're, they're on different teams. But uh, he's got this, this critical thought process to him mm-hmm. that she finds
1: very intriguing. A couple things, right. So, she crosses the line, right, because she does the drug. And she's definitely a little too uh, into she's she's not maybe not seeing the whole she's thing. She's taking her undercover work very seriously.
3: She's very curious. You have to really commit.
1: <laughs> right.
3: You're making a face.
1: I'm not making a face. I'm just saying, like, if you, if you view it in black and white terms, she's maybe doing some things that are not exactly uh, what she should be doing. However, if she's not as interested as she is, that breakthrough in the end, that scene that we all agree is fantastic— that doesn't happen, right? Right, if she, they don't connect it, right. if, if she doesn't go. Yeah. And the then ultimately distance. he doesn't have a breakdown and, and everything is not kind of figured out in a way yeah. as much as it could be. If she wasn't willing open to open up to her, yeah. Because mm-hmm. right. like she says
4: to Benson in that scene um, when they go see his wife for the first time, she knows that she is the only person in that squadron who he will talk to. He, he assumes everybody else is so armored in their own insecurities and whatnot
1: that... They couldn't possibly understand him, and she could. But if a cop does DMT, a detective does DMT, can they get in trouble for that? Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> we had
3: to we had to fudge it for dramatic purposes. But, okay. Um, Just
1: wanted to make sure. Because
4: in, in the real world, unless your life is being threatened, you can't, you know, if you're undercover, you can't partake in the, the criminal activity because you have to
1: right. okay. <laughs> obey the law. Why did you make her do that? You felt like that was necessary to make people see how interested she was? Yes. I mean, also, there's
4: selfish reasons because we thought that a great act out would be her hallucinating. So, there's there's that part of it. But we also thought that, especially with a guy like Adam Arkin, you know, he is so captivating.
1: Mm-hmm.
4: That, he would convince Yeah, him. that she,
1: she, in essence, loses herself to him. And let's talk about Benson in this episode and just, her approach to this and also the tension that she has with Rollins because their approaches are so different.
3: You know, Benson is, she's closer to Finn in this episode, I think, in terms of like, this is black and white and, you know, it was a long time ago. I know you previously, you know, um, were a student of his, but people can change. Um,
1: She's got a little, you should be over this by now.
3: Uh, Yeah, I think she's, you know, she's the mama bear of the squad room. I think she wants to protect the survivors and she wants to protect her squad. And she's our compass. She's our moral compass in an episode. So I think, um, you know, Rollins being as inquisitive as she is and wanting to see things from different perspectives, I think that they they sort of butt heads in this episode a little bit. And it's, you know, how do you reel back somebody that seems like they're sort of drifting away?
4: Yeah, and. Rollins' journey in this episode is obviously with Adler, and Benson's journey is with the victims, and so that's her primary concern throughout. And like Monet was alluding to, she sees Adler for what he is. She thinks that he's a charlatan, and she thinks that Amanda has blinders on when she's dealing with him. And it's frustrating for her because she can see it so clearly, but Rollins can't. And what does Chief Garland think? Chief Garland.
3: Charlatan for real. Yes. He really thinks that. <laughs> and
4: he sees right through this guy. Whereas Rollins is drawn to him. Whatever powers of persuasion he has, to they don't work on Garland.
3: I think for Rollins, it's also just trying to figure out why. Like, why he is doing what he's doing. She really wants to understand him. And I think for everyone else, it's like, nope, he's the bad guy. And... It's not that he's dehumanized, but I guess for lack of a better word, she's trying to to humanize what happened to him and what his circumstances and why he would be committing these crimes when he was, you know, a lauded author and professor.
4: Right. I mean, he could do so much good, but he, he doesn't. He chose to go another way and she's trying to get to the bottom of that, I think.
1: But is she also intrigued because she wants to go other places as well? Or is it just that she's trying to figure out what his motivation is?
3: Yeah, I think she is. Something that we've been toying with this season is, you know, what Rollins' place is in the squad room and in her life and what she, where she wants to go. And I think that this episode really touches on that. Yeah. I, you know, she initially found Adler when she was in a period where she felt lost. And I think you can argue that this is another period where she's sort of on shaky ground here. And maybe that's why she's a little bit more drawn to him than normally she would be.
1: Well, I think this is a very unique and definitely uh, exciting episode and well worth watching. And I would like to thank Monet and Brendan for coming on and talking about it.
3: Thank Thank you for having us.
1: All right. That's a wrap for The Squad Room. Next week on the program, Kelly Giddish and Peter Scanavino together. They come in and hang out with us. You're going to want to check that out. As always, we want to hear from you. We love hearing from you. Follow us on Instagram at NBCSVU and Wolf Entertainment and on Twitter at NBCSVU and Wolf End. The Squad Room is hosted and produced by me, Anthony Roman. It is executive produced by Elliot Wolf and Warren Light, and it is brought to you by NBC and Wolf Entertainment. See you next week.